Wow, you sound all like a newly skyped. I am. I'm. I am newly skyped. How did you know, Don? <laughs> well, perhaps it was the uh, the text messages we were sharing. <laughs> the 13 minute delay to our <laughs> podcast recording. Yeah, apologies to all the live listeners. Yeah, sorry for for uh, starting late. Um, I'm newly skyped, newly call recorded. It appears to be recording. Good, good. It's recording on my end as well. Uh, it it's amazing. This new Skype, Don. It's like it's revolutionary. Is it revolutionary? Are you, are you sure you're using that word correctly? Oh, sorry. I mispronounced that. Revolutionary? <laughs> Re, I don't know. I'm, I, all I know is it looks exactly the same as my old Skype. And, <laughs> and, it's, and it must be working so much better. Indeed. Um, so, yeah. Hey, it's been, it's been forever. It's been a long time, but I feel like we, we, it's like we almost like just talked recently. Well, that's true. We did talk this morning. We did, but we didn't report a, record a podcast this morning. No, but you know what? I did do. I did. I did record a podcast recently, <sighs> and actually, I had a conversation with my graduate student via Skype, and I recorded that as well because I just have call recorded call. call I can't talk, but I've <laughs> been recording a lot. Um, I have call recorders set to just automatically turn on every time uh, I have a call on Skype. So I, I could, I could, I guess I could put out the conversation I had with my graduate student as a podcast. <sighs> But it wouldn't be very interesting. What I, what was the tweet that I wrote when you said that you recorded a podcast? I think I just wrote sigh, not yeah, no, not I, the um, uh, Gangnam style sigh, but S I G H. And and actually, um, it was a lot of fun. I did I did an episode of Systematic, which is a, a tech podcast on the Five by Five Network, with uh, a guy uh, by the name of Brett Terpstra, uh, who is like the nerd's nerd. I mean, as like you know, I consider people like you and me, Ben, like we're probably we're that we're you and I are probably the tech support for people in our families and maybe even the people in our departments that have computer questions but then there's people like brett and so we're we're like you know like we're the 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 10 percent, right like like we know we, we we probably know more than let's say picked nine other random people off the street well people like people like brett are like an order of magnitude more nerdy and smart than we are so anyway it was a it was a real. It was a real pleasure to be on his podcast. He does. A, he does a nice interview, and it was. Uh, yeah, it was a lot. It was fun. What did you guys talk about? Well, we talked about mostly about um, nerd stuff and and software and what it's like to be work at an academic institution. And you know, a lot of the a lot of the tech podcasts. Um, you know, they're people that, especially the ones I listen to, they're people that live in the Apple universe and, you know, they have great disdain for Windows and for Microsoft applications. And unfortunately, and Brett and I talked about this because of certainly certain legacy applications that I have to use, 
um, to, to do my job, I have to boot Windows occasionally. And because I collaborate with people that basically all use Microsoft products, uh, I have to use Microsoft Office Suite. So that was, I think, a little bit of a, an interesting perspective. So, yeah, so we talked about, about nerd stuff, about, about uh, maybe a little bit about podcasting, but mostly about um, uh, technology, although he did have some questions about food safety, which I answered. So uh, that was, it's always interesting to talk to smart people that know nothing about food safety. Yeah, that, uh, th- that is an, uh, always a kind of an odd conversation. Like they're, they're starting at zero <laughs> sometimes. Right. Which is, which is, I mean, I'm sure, you know, like when I have conversations with folks like that, as I'm sure you probably do, it kind of makes you pause and go, oh man, we, there's, there's probably lots of people that are having, wrestling with this exact same question in this concept. So we're not doing a great job uh, getting this information out or whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. And he, you know, he had questions for me, like about microbiology and about mutation. And and pretty quickly we got into territory that I really don't know anything about. Um, but it did lead to a very nice, uh, nice title for the podcast. So it's an episode, and we'll link to this in the show notes. It's episode 76 of Systematic. Uh, and the title of the episode is Fatal Mutations with Dr. Don. Ooh, nice. Um, So I have a. a, You said something that reminded me of something else from my past, Um, and I, I I wanted to know since you're a math guy and you do good calculations, (laughs) if you could help me with this. Um, I'll try. Okay, so you said that something about uh you know we're in the top 10 percent of of tech folks just you know based on we're um <clears throat> we happen to be the person who sets up the wireless network right exactly. like by default yeah exactly. so in my first year of university or college as it's translated to in in the u.s i went into um the introduction to my uh, biology classes and actually my, my classes in, in first year were split into uh, zoology, botany and microbiology and at the start of my biology class the professor said look around you in this room just being here on the first day of university uh, biology, zoology you are in the top 1% of people in the world that know anything about biology Wow, and I thought, whoa, that it kind of blew my mind a little bit. And then I've I, I've thought about that com- that comment, you know, multiple times, you know, over you know in the last twenty years since since that happened or seventeen years, whatever it is. And I thought, I wonder if that's even true. Like, I wonder if there's, you know, what how would how did he arrive at that? Was it just the, you know the top one percent of people that have ever taken a first one day of a biology course in first year of university, or is that you know? If if you looked at people that had never been to school, maybe they know more about biology than I do, or I don't know. Anyway, just as a as a person who calculates things for a living, do you think that's a realistic you know situation? Like, do you think that if if our listeners are listening to our podcast and this is their first uh, what six minutes of episode one, they've just happened across food safety talk that just in the first six minutes they've heard more about food safety because we've mentioned it or are going to learn more about food safety than 99% of the world. Uh, that 99% seems awfully ambitious. Like, I mean, you'd have to say, well, okay, so how many people are there on the planet? And then of those people, how many go to college? And then of those that go to college, how many take biology? And I, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a good sense of 
I, I, I certainly, I would say, you know, no disrespect, you're, you would not be in the 99%, in, in the 1% right. people in Canada, for sure. Right, because right. I would say most people in Canada go to college. Yeah, I mean, right? percentage-wise, if you look at other countries, you know, especially look at the populations that we have in developing countries, um, you know, Canada would definitely have a, a higher per capita rate of attending one day of a biology class in university. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, it would be easy enough, to, I suppose, to with a little bit of Googling, you could kind of check through the back of the envelope check, which is actually – it's good that you mentioned that because that is often – a kind of a, even though people people that are maybe a little bit intimidated by by math and or don't think about you know math from the point of view of food safety, um, anytime anybody gives you a number like that, you ought to do a reality check and say, well, okay, let me see if if this makes sense just on some intuitive level based on things that I can calculate. Are we are we within an order of magnitude of where we probably ought to be? And and I think that's a really important thing to to do as kind of just like a BS check anytime anybody spits out a fact at you, you know? Yeah. It, it was you know, are, are, you never know what to think uh, when you get to College. I, I mean, l- l- let me step back and r- make that less general. When I went in to to university and started, um, you know, my course of study in molecular biology, I didn't really know what I was getting into. Like, I didn't know anything about the system. I didn't know. I just knew that I liked, you know, learning about stuff in high school. And then when I when I went to to university, it was it was different. And that this was like seriously maybe day three of all of university when I had this first class. And I, I remember it kind of blowing my mind a little bit because I thought, well, if I'm, you know, say, the, say I took his, um, his back of the envelope calculation as, uh, as close to the truth. I thought, well, I don't know anything about zoology because this is my first day. <laughs> and so, you know, being that I'm in, you know, it, based on, on what he's saying in the, in the top, you know, one percentile in the world, then we better have a lot more to learn you know, or more, you know, there's not, I, I, I got, I hope that there are people in the, you know, top thousandth of a percentile that know a heck of a lot more than I do, um, that are, that are really looking at this stuff. But, but it was, you know, it was my first introduction to, you know, uh, th- thought beyond, um, a, a regurgitation learning, you know, it, it, whatever his goal was, um, and his name is uh, Ron Brooks. I, I remember him. And he was a really, I mean, a fabulous lecturer. Um, and Doug actually had him as a as a lecturer when he was an undergrad as well. Um, it it definitely got me thinking on the first day to question something, but I don't know if that's what he was trying to do or not. Like it was it was kind of it, it was it's kind of cool to look back on it, but I didn't I didn't really had no idea what to think when he when he mentioned it. Huh. Oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, interesting. Well, well, there is a Dr. Ronald Brooks Professor Emeritus uh, at Guelph. Uh, so that'd uh, be him. Integrative Biology faculty. So we'll uh, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. And truthfully, out of all the lectures that I ever went to in my entire career, yours and mine included, Don, he mm-hmm. was the most entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 like the most. It was it, it was really like watching a. Uh, like a documentary and a reality show all in once. It was really, it was good. I, I, I mean, his, his class stuck with me. So, 
Yeah, I had a very, very memorable uh, uh, intro biology professor at Cornell as well, a guy by the name of Bill Keaton, who, you know, again, one of these guys that literally wrote the, the book, uh, Keaton's, um, I guess it's called Biological Sciences, one of the commonly used uh, tech book, textbooks out there. And he was a very, very cool guy and, and, uh, and very much enjoyed his, his lectures. But, you know, the other person I think about a lot um, is my high school biology professor or biology teacher, um, uh, Mr. Steinbaugh. And he was, he was a son of a bitch. I mean, he was, <laughs> he was, he was pretty like he, he always wear a, wore a lab coat and he was very focused on lab safety and getting us to, you know, and then he was also sort of very, the, 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 the typical scientist, like, well, you have to pay attention to detail and, you know, like details matter. And what was the thing that he used to say? Um, he used to have these, um, Oh, did he call them deductions or something? And anytime you screwed up, you got a, you got a deduction. Oh no! Or or uh, uh, I don't know. It was a mark, or it was it was something. Uh, but but something like that. I'm rem- blanking on the specifics. But but he did he did he he was a good guy. I mean, he was kind of curmudgeonly, but he was he really was a good guy, and he had a profound impact. And I wish, I mean, he was old at the time, so he's probably since passed away. But I, I kind of always wished I could have gone back to him and said, Hey, look, uh, you know, you were my biology professor in high school, and now. I'm, I'm a professor at a university, and I just thought you should know that. <laughs> huh. like, Thanks. You, know, you, had, you had an impact. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, you know, going back to my high school years, there, I had a biology teacher, uh, Lauren Sawatsky, who retired not long after I left uh, high school or maybe when I was in um, university. But he was, he'd been teaching for a long time but still was very young-looking. He, he must have been teaching when he was like 15 or something at Port Hope High School. And uh, he, uh, I, I mean, w- w- taught me about phage, and uh, he got me into microbiology, and was was really sort of keen on talking about science and popular culture in class, and was really really engaging. Um, great, you know, great uh, um, teacher. And then I had, uh, and he was, but he was like, you know, you know, Don, how I like to be a hippie and not have any structure. He was like really unstructured in his teaching, which was, which was awesome for me. Um, and then I had another, uh, my, my high school physics teacher was very structured, uh, and was kind of like, you know, scary guy and, um, he, his name was Ken Holmes, and he was just just this little little dude who who got really really excited over physics and vectors and calculations and formulas and stuff, and would jump up on the desk and you know, when someone got it right. Um, but he was really like structured, except when it came to giving exams. And this is the one thing that I that I remember about, and and I've taken. I mean, in, in, anytime I've taught a, taught a class, taken from him on assessment, he would uh, he he would come in. So we would have a a, a midterm exam, or you know, we. Um, or, or some sort of a test, a unit test, and there would be nothing written. Like you wouldn't get like in every other high school class that I took, you would get these you know photocopied pages, and you, there would it would be graded out of a hundred or out of fifty or whatever. And he would come in, and you would sit down with just blank paper, and he would write. Uh, a bunch of questions on the board as he was, and he would, you know, he, he went from no paper. He just would write up, um, you know, 10 or 15 questions uh, on the blackboard. And then you had no idea what they were being assessed out of. So some of his, his tests or exams would be, you know, marked out of 67 or 74 or 13, or, you know, you just had no concept. So you would get this grade back 
on the top of your exam at the end of the, you know, he, he'd go home and, and mark them and they'd be available. And then you'd, you, you wouldn't get the denominator. <laughs> so you would get a 43, but you didn't know what that was about, what that was out of until you got to class. 43 out of 43. Yeah, it could have been 43. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it was unpredictable, but I like that. It was like really, you, and it, I think he just kind of graded them based on how everyone was doing. Like, ah, that's a that's a th- that's a forty six, huh? But it was cool. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, high school uh, high school teachers are cool. It's fun that they stick with you. You know, they're for a while that they influence you. Yeah, absolutely. Um. So you got some. You got a beverage. Are you are you at home? Or are you did you trek into uh, the cold uh, Hoth like landscape of New Jersey? Oh, New Jersey weather is so weird. So it was Hoth like yesterday, <laughs> and and today, I mean, we had a a big snowstorm on Thursday night, and so Friday was a snow day, and there was a lot of snow. There's probably well, not a lot. I mean, not by Canadian standards, <laughs> a lot by maybe North Carolina's. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, we had six inches of snow and you had to get out the snowblower and all that. And then it got really warm. And I think this morning when I woke up, it was 51 <sighs> and raining. And by the time the sun comes up tomorrow morning, it will have finished raining and it will be seven degrees. Awesome. So it's just like it's just taking a, you know, so it got really warm and now it's getting really cold. But to answer your question, no, I, uh, I'm working from home today um, uh, here in my office and um, uh, happy that I don't have to go into the office. It's, it's you know, it's, it's just a nasty miserable kind of gray day here so yeah I'm, I'm i'm glad to be to be here and to, to be able to avoid a commute today well it's we have a similar landscape here i think of uh temperatures uh dropping we when i left my house this morning it was 60 uh when i got to my office uh 40 minutes later it was 52 uh and it's by the time i leave this afternoon it's supposed to be like 30 and uh, I go play hockey tonight at nine o'clock, and according to Google, it'll be like nineteen degrees then. So going from and, sixty to nineteen in in a day. And we should we should not complain too much about the weather because uh, anybody that listens to the podcast uh, that's in uh, the Midwest, uh, Chicago area, or Minnesota, it's just miserable. So. Babies, babies, I call them. <laughs> they, that's what you get for living in the Midwest, Don. Is that what you get? That's what you get. You get cold weather. Um, one of my grad students, Ben Raymond, who does listen to the podcast every once in a while, uh, is in Boston. He lives in uh, Boston, uh, and he um, sent me a message over over Christmas because Boston was getting hammered with a bunch of snow, like similar to what you had. And he said, it's Boston, and it's the winter, and snow is not news. <laughs> like, you're right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's what happens when you live there. Uh, I was excited. I got a message today from uh, one of our one of our podcast fans, uh, uh, Donna Garen, announcing the AFI um, uh, conference, the Frozen Food American Frozen Food Institute con- uh, conference, uh, which is in San Diego this year in in uh, February, and so that that uh, made me feel warm, even you know at least uh, you know mentally. <laughs> Think about going to San Diego in February. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Hey, um, so I might be there. Yeah, I saw that yeah. your name was copied on that. Yeah, so uh, Donna Donna sent me an invite to, to. She said, "I hope you don't mind. I've added you to the advisory board council." And I yeah. said, "That sounds great." 
Yeah, I, so, I noticed that. I was yeah. like, oh, cool, Ben will be there. So yeah, yeah it's, it's a good it's a good group, and and she's a good uh, she's a good uh, facilitator of that group. They're they're really trying to make. You know, and frozen food is one of those interesting things where it's like, well, gosh, what science is there left to do around frozen food, right? Clarence Birdseye back in the day, you know, uh, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Every, you know, every food science 101 course you take, you learn about frozen food. But they actually are facing some rather interesting, you know, food safety issues with the implementation of FISMA. And, you know, what is the risk of having occasional listeria in frozen foods that maybe are going to be cooked or, you know, I mean, so there are. There still are. There still is some very interesting science and even food safety science to do around around the issue of frozen foods. Well, and you know, I'm, I'm interested in it on the um, you know the consumer side of things on handling and mm-hmm. uh, messaging and how do you how, you know how safe can you can you make it before it gets into that consumer's home? Because um, we uh, did a study a few years ago that I've talked about on the podcast before in Kansas, uh, Kansas State, with um, uh, bringing. Uh, a, a set of adolescents and a set of primary meal preparers into a model kitchen to prepare frozen chicken items and then uh, see how they handle that, what kind of cross-contamination and hand-washing, and, and m- most importantly for that type of product, uh, what kind of thermometer use did they have because there's been a bunch of, uh, or had been at, at that time, it's a little more topical back in 04, 05, but there had been a bunch of um, salmonella um, outbreaks associated with those types of products. Um, and and so it got into like some really interesting stuff because the the companion piece of that project was some work that Randy Phoebus did, looking at taking um, what we saw in the consumer practices and um, you know using uh, uh, data loggers and doing some. Um, uh, you know, on purpose contamination of those products and seeing what happens in in a microwave type environment uh, to to kill it. And we talked about sort of the inconsistency of microwaves and um, back when we two episodes ago when we talked about uh, 1960s in the uh, world of food safety uh, from the IAFP stuff. But it, you know that that world is is really interesting because you know, I've talked about my microwave and how it's this new microwave I have. We're still trying to figure out how to not burn things Mm -hmm. i mean there's just so many variables right yeah yeah and we we talked about this a number of times on the show and i think i shared that my student uh sylvia dominguez who who did some work on microwave safety and looking at trying to you know you know assess what those risks are i mean there, there are some very interesting issues around around frozen foods and microwaves and food safety um and yeah like you like you mentioned this yeah, we another rehashing of a discussion we've had, but this idea of listeria might be around, but at how much? And the that that industry more than most, um, other than maybe the fresh produce industry, really has to uh, deal with that zero tolerance for listeria issue more than um, more than anybody else. Uh, and and whether it's a public health risk or not is is something that that you and I could debate on. Well, although we would probably make the same discussion <laughs> right right exactly hey so um we should do we should do some official follow-up here let's do some follow-up 
So again, we want to we want to let people know that we really appreciate it when they we do they do follow up with us. Um, and uh, we did have one uh, bit of follow up since the last episode, and that's from a gentleman by the name of Andrew O. Uh, and that's uh, uh, not uh, that's not that. Well, who knows? That might that might be an abbreviation of his last name, or that might be his entire last name. It could be. Um, and he says uh, he says hi. I'm a young researcher from Singapore. I'm very new to this field of food hygiene and food safety. Uh, he says he went to the China Food Conference in Beijing, and he, he saw my presentations there, and he was very interested in quantitative microbial risk assessment. And uh, he mentioned, uh, Andrew mentions, that I talked about the podcast while I was there. So good job. Yes, I, I, did, I did a good job there. And so that's why he's checking it out. And he says it's, a, it's great stuff, and he's going to be a regular visitor uh, to our podcast and to the website in the future. Um, and then he has a, a little bit of a question. He says, I'm currently reading up on um, this four-hour rule on uh, retail display of food. And he says, was that just an arbitrary number, or is it really scientifically proven? Uh, so I can tell already that Andrew is our kind of people. He wants to. He wants He's to know a scientific basis. It's a very good question. Um, and uh, if it was scientifically defined, do you know of any papers that have demonstrated? And of course, uh, I responded to him actually, and we've talked about this before on the podcast as well. Um, I recently published a paper in uh, June. Came out in June of this year, and we'll link to this in the show notes June, as well. June of last year, Don. Oh, sorry. sorry. Come on. Yes. Yes. June of 2013. Uh, I keep keep writing 2014 on my checks, checks, Ben. Tweet that. There were were a lot of very funny tweets about people writing stuff uh, on their checks that was that was not 2014. Um, Making making fun of that old uh, that old saw. Um, So um, yeah, so the the title of the article was "Utilization of Mathematical Models to Manage Risk of Holding Cold Food Without Temperature Control." So this is a topic that I've thought a lot about. Um, and uh, I did uh, did some consulting for uh, Jetro Restaurant Depot about this, and we published this paper. And in fact, I've had a graduate student, uh, Jen McConnell, who um, uh, recently graduated and who now works uh, at a lab, uh, Cornell Medical School lab in in New York City. And um, what was actually was over the break was working on a paper from the paper from her master's thesis, which basically validates the assumptions in that that uh, JFP article from last summer. And, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting question, uh, Andrew. And the answer is it's sort of scientifically based, but there's some definite weaknesses there. And again, read, uh, read my article, uh, um, in JFP for kind of a full critique of what is in the food code and whether what is in the food code is, is correct. Is, let me let me ask you a question about this uh, sure. paper again because we haven't talked mm-hmm. about this last time, or we haven't we didn't talk about this. I can't talk today either. We didn't talk about this last time. We talked about this paper when it when it came out. But is this the type of paper that that you would hope someone would bring up at CFP? You know that you you've published this that someone will uh, sort of make an issue out of this and and have it discussed at that forum or that's the, that's part I don't know that's an option option B is would you as a member of CFP use this and say oh I have an issue with the with the four hour um, the rule that we have in the food code and here's the the data that I generated and it's in a peer reviewed paper yeah you know, what how do you how do you use this well. 
you know, so to me, on the one hand, I can put on my researcher hat and I can say, okay, well, my job is to is to publish the paper. Right. I publish the paper and it's done. So my job as a researcher is done. Um, my job as an extension specialist or as a food safety consultant to somebody is to go and say, okay, well, you're being challenged on point X, Y, Z. Here is some some data that you can use as as a uh, uh, you know as as a buttress for your position and in, and in fact talking about conference for food protection there will be an issue uh, coming forward at this year's the 2014 conference this year I guess I'm, I'm saying yeah, that's correctly right. this year's 2014 yeah, conference look at your checks yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> um, looking at um, emergencies what to do in in retail operations mm. retail and, and food service operations when you lose power for example and one of the documents that's going to be put forward by the CFP committee that worked on this is going to have a table with times and temperatures basically saying, okay, so if the power has been out for this long and the food is up to this temperature, here are your options in terms of what to do about that. And in fact, the basis for that table uh, is the, the same basis that underlies this this JFP article. Now, they actually took the information that I put together in that in that paper and and made it um, uh, made some even more sort of conservative assumptions. Um, so, but and again, even then, even with those conservative assumptions, we're seeing some pushback from the regulators about, well, we really don't want this in here, and this kind of opens up a whole door. And so, again, we're kind of back to this whole food safety dance of the industry wanting to do things that are safe, but to kind of push the limits. I don't want to say push the limits because that they, the industry wants to be safe, but they don't want to be, they don't want to be excessively safe or they don't want to be safe for the purposes of being safe because that they, you know, and well, and, and they've actually raised a very interesting point, And I think we may have talked about this before as well, but in an emergency, when you've lost power and think hurricane Sandy, for example, um, those operations, they need to continue to, to yes. sell food to people who need it, to provide food for workers. I mean, imagine all the people out there after Hurricane Sandy going out there and fixing power lines and doing all this good stuff. Well, they, they need to be fed, and, and we have to be able to come up to come to some agreement as to what's an appropriate thing to do. It's, it's one thing to say, well, fine, you can't serve food to those people. Okay, well, you know, that actually has, you know, impacts and, and, and further knock-on effects. And so you have to – you really do want to make a decision that's based on safety and, and you want to be safe, but you don't want to just be completely draconian, I guess is probably a good characterization of your, of your assessment, right? You have, to, you have to basically think about the science and, okay, so what if there are pathogens? And, okay, so what, is, what happens when a pathogen is exposed to this kind of temperature profile and what, and what – uh, is the likelihood that it's going to grow, and what is the you know what is the the level of safety that we're comfortable with that we're that we're willing to to accept in the, in these circumstances? So, so the the short answer to your question that was the long answer. The short answer is yes. I would hope that either I would use this or others would use this kind of logic and this kind of reasoning uh, to an advance to advance an issue uh, at the conference. It's it, I, I really like this paper, and I think I mentioned this um, last time we. We talked about it. Actually, I don't even know if we talked about it in in an episode, but I think you and I talked about it offline or something um, at, at some point. Because it, it, in the whole, this is I'm gonna like 
this is me trying to get you to not do podcasts with other people by paying you compliments. <laughs> um, this is what I mean by show your work. I mean, right. This, right. <laughs> this is exactly it. It's, it, I look at, and hopefully the folks that are, um, that are listening, some of you might be, have this paper, you downloaded it now, and it's um, Utilization of Mathematical Models to Manage Risk of Holding Cold F- Food Without Temperature Control by Donald W. Schaffner. I look at um, uh, Table 2 and then 3 and um, uh, where is it? Where's the other one that's really good here? Figure 5. And it basically lays out the case here without going into too much detail that says, look, here's this isn't us just guessing at it. Here, here is what the model is showing. Um, and you've got this, uh, the lines in figure one on, um, even if things go fail, it's still in the, in, into the safety. It's still in a safe kind of zone. Um, anyway, you know, I don't want to go too, too much in detail on, on this paper, but it's, it is really, it's, it's nicely done in a way to say, here's, the worst case scenario here's the best case scenario and um yeah there are some uh some potential public health um uh, consequences that come up but they don't come up for a while you know on, on a, in a in a time thing so four hours yes uh but you're really looking at much longer depending on what your starting and end point are right did right. i did i get that right yeah no and thank and thanks for the thanks for the positive uh feedback I, I, indeed it is as a guy who does these kind of calculations for a living, it is very important to me when people show their work and state their assumptions. I mean, one of the things that I'm uh, probably I don't say I'm yeah I, I'm I'm proud of in this paper is well first of all all the calculations and all that that's great but but what it forced me to do and again thanks to the folks from from Jetro for allowing, you know, for providing the funding that let me to do this is it allowed me to critique the FDA position paper that was in the current food code guidance. And, and as you go through that position paper, what you discover is that there's a lot of either, either incorrect assumptions or unstated assumptions Hmm. or unclear assumptions. And so part of showing your work is to say, okay, well, I, I, to get from point A to point B, I have to make some assumptions let me tell you what they are. And then if, at least if you disagree with my conclusions, um, show me where I've made a math error or show me where you want a different assumption and we can go through. And, and that's what they did with the, this emergency, emergency um, uh, food safety document was basically to say, well, we want to use different assumptions. It's like, okay, that's fine. But let's, and let's, but let's make really clear, having Why? done this a number yeah. of times, let's make really clear what they are, at least so that when I come back and look at this in six months, I know what the assumptions were that I made that let me do the the calculation so oh yeah it's yeah it's it's good and this I mean this just kind of underscores to me the sort of really nice system that that FDA and and the folks behind CFP created to at least have these kind of discussions in an open forum you know whether FDA changes anything or not um, on any of the issues that, that come up, that's, I mean, that's a different situation, but there's no other regulatory framework like the food code CFB partnership combination thing that goes on that I'm, that I'm aware of where you've got the regulators and the regulated industry 
and um, you know the state and federal regulators plus the academics all getting together to, to sort of fight this out on a regular basis. And I, I wish, you know, I've mentioned this uh, in previous podcasts, but I hope that um, the FISMA rules, whenever they do get, you know, whenever they actually happen or whatever happens, that something, some model like CFP exists for uh, preventive controls and for a produce rule. Like, it's just such a great system to, to because it gives you, I mean, without that system, it, there's probably not as much um, place for for papers like what you did. You know, like the it's there. You know, they're still going to be needed in the body of research, but there's a real outlet for people to use it. Well, thanks. Yeah, and and there are there are two other examples of of similar. Well, I, I guess I guess to a certain extent, maybe Codex Alimentarius sort of works yeah. like this. Um, but then there's also the pasteurized milk ordinance, and there's a whole set of huh. uh, regulations that go that that get formed through that. Um, as part of a conference, and then also the interstate shellfishers, sh- shellfishing, ISSC, Inter- Interstate Shellfish Commission or conference or something, which again, these are the PMO and CFP and, and ISSC are all kind of appendages or that work through uh, FDA. Um, so there, there, there are examples of that. I would say CFP is probably the best example of one that really seems to affect a, a large number of people and work, work relatively well. Um, but again, that's through kind of years of trial and error and a lot of dedicated folks basically volunteering their time to make all this happen. Oh, my microphone was off. <laughs> I'm talking and, and nothing's coming out. Um, yeah, it's it's good. I'm in a, I've mentioned that I'm going to uh, join up or I have joined up and I'll be there this year. I'm looking forward to my first uh, experience at CFP. Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and as as we've discussed before, I'm You're I'm gonna miss it. So bailing. I'm, I'm, yeah, well, I, yeah, you got other stuff with a good reason. You got other you stuff know, going. I've got I've got to have my presidential year within yeah. uh, within IAFP. So so it goes. That makes sense. Um, well, thanks to Andrew O for uh, uh, a little bit of follow up for us. Absolutely, thank you, Andrew. Um, Don, so should we should oh. we do bug trivia, Ben? What's my favorite? This is my favorite time of the podcast. <laughs> Um, before before I do the bug trivia intro, um, bug trivia history of IAFP, um, I I've been listening to a lot of Metallica lately. <laughs> and Metallica, yeah, is that, that it's kind of weird? Is that, is, that a, is that a heavy metal band that makes toys? It, it is. It's a uh, you you might know them from um, from such items as uh, uh, I don't know, I don't know, Lego, I don't know. <laughs> No, that didn't even make sense. I, I don't know. It's, I've been listening to um, to Metallica and other early '90s metal um, because I've been reading uh, Chuck Klosterman's latest book that came out this summer uh, called "The Man in the Black Hat," uh, and and he wrote uh, a, a, a like every time I read his stuff, he's the ethicist in the New York Times Magazine, and he wrote a. Uh, a book uh, probably 10 or, or 12 years ago called Fargo Rock City uh, back about metal in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and every time I read him, I have to listen to metal. Isn't that weird? A- anyway, Chuck Klosterman. That's interesting. He's, I love him. Uh, and, and so it, he, so I'm, I'm, I, I've been reading 
at night I'll take my iPad to bed and put it on the uh, black backlight and throw on some Metallica and read Chuck Klosterman's book. Well, since we're before we do this, since we're sharing what we're reading on our iPads, I have to say um, I have uh, and it's kind of similarly black and dark. I am in the (coughs) I'm in the process of uh, rereading. Um, and actually, I think I talked about this with uh, with Brett Terpstra on on Systematic. Uh, I'm I'm in the I was talking with somebody about it. Um, I'm in the process of rereading um, uh, the Sandman comics by Neil Gaiman, and uh, really uh, good stuff. And so, for those of you that aren't familiar, uh, Sandman is basically um, the the guy that. Uh, comes by at night and sprinkles sand in your eyes and and lets you go to sleep um he's the um he he's uh, he was there was a sort of a, a golden age or silver age superhero who had this powder he would throw at people which would make them sleep but this this character is 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 really sort of the lord of um dream and he and it's just it's it's hard to describe except just if you're if you're at all interested in comics or or you know the knee, the name Neil Gaiman and you you haven't read uh the Sandman comics check it out uh I think um uh issue 1 was free for a little while it might not be free anymore but uh anyway absolutely well worth uh, well worth checking out and I have to give a a shout out to uh, to my colleague Sean uh, Siobhan Duffy, uh, Siobhan actually lent me her hardcover trade paperbacks of the Sandman comics um, uh, back in the early 2000s, and uh, really enjoyed reading them. And I've, I'm since going back through and, and repurchasing it, repurchasing them or purchasing them on Comicsology on the iPad. So great, great reading, great, uh, great, great bedtime reading for as I'm as I'm drifting off to sleep, I can read about the Sandman. Well. Um... The only Sandman I know from comics is the Sandman that battles Spider-Man. Is it a different Sandman? Yes, because this is a Sandman in the DC universe. Oh, it's the DC, the DC Sandman. I um, have also been reading about Sandman and Spider-Man as I uh, read um, graphic novel comic books to my children as they go to bed at night. Excellent. <laughs> different Sandman. The Sandman from Spider-Man turns into sand and then uh, robs banks. Yes, slightly slightly different. Yeah, but um, really cool. Spider-Man in one of the books that I read uh, to my son, or one of the ones we have, he uh, he, um, got a lot of thermal energy from somewhere and uh, turned Sandman into glass and then just shattered him. Very cool. Yeah, it was a good move by (laughs) Spider-Man. Clever, clever move there. Well, he's he's a good, he's he's wily, that Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. I know we talked a little bit about... um, comics and the stuff you were reading last time did you ever have like a a preference between dc and marvel was that like was there like a a, like you made a decision anytime well it's a good question we talked last time about uh, jack kirby and forever people which was in the dc universe and i would say i guess when i started reading comics i was reading dc comics and then i learned pretty quickly that all the cool kids were reading marvel comics and so I switched over to reading Marvel comics, you know, because I want to do what the cool kids are yeah. doing. Um, but then DC had this whole renaissance with, with Jack Kirby and Forever People. So, um, but I would say a major, but and now it's all like so confusing and so fractured. And there's like, you know, really good comics that are not put out by, I guess, by Marvel or DC. Um, so it's all kind of fractured. But I would say 
if you, I mean, if you went up to hypothetically, if I still had comic books, and hypothetically, if they were still in the attic of my of my house because my wife hasn't made me throw them out yet or get rid of them. <laughs> hypothetically, um, hypothetically, um, I would go up and I would say probably a majority of ones that I have in my hypothetical collection would be Marvel. Well, I would, you know, from my from my days as a uh, in, in the late '80s as a comic reading kid. Um, I think I was a Marvel fan more than DC, mm-hmm. and um, I really liked the Uncanny X Men. That mm-hmm. was my like that. That was my uh, my series that I was all about. Um, and then I liked the Teen Titans. I mean, that's a DC it comic, is. but uh, but yeah, the but X Men were the that, that was the where, where it was at for me. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's a good lead in. To um, hey, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to the 1980s. Uh, so here we go. <laughs> food, sa- history of food safety, bug trivia, formerly known as bug trivia. <laughs> that was uh, that was the worst one yet. Ben. I think that was Bauhaus. <laughs> it was Bauhaus inspired. I think that's exactly what it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, st- sticking with the 80s, of course. Of course, of course. Um, yeah, so so we're up to the 1980s. Um, this is, again, to fill people in, this is a... Uh, we're basically recapping a series of articles that appeared in Food Protection Trends um, uh, that uh, leading up to the IAFP's 100th anniversary. And uh, each, each issue of FPT had a recap of a different decade. We're now up to the 1980s. The 1980s um, uh, article was written by some folks from USDA Food Safety Inspection Service, Christina Barlow, uh, Denise El- Eblen, and Robert Carpentreo. But I apologize. Uh, I don't. I do. I do know Christina. I don't know Denise and Roberto. So my apologies to you guys, if you're listening and if you're upset that I've butchered your names. Um, we should say uh, that the uh, FPT uh, subcommittee that put all this together is, of course, chaired by our, our friend of the podcast and, and friend in real life, Michelle Daniluk, with uh, a whole host of uh, characters, um, uh, some of whom who also listen to this podcast. Um, and uh, again, just uh, paraphrasing from the article. <clears throat> The 1980s uh, saw the birth of several food safety issues that are still the focus of food safety professionals today. And remember now, to flash back to the last time we did this, we saw the same thing in the 1970s. So we see issues come up, but then uh, they sort of get resolved, they get understood, uh, and then maybe they get solved at a higher level in in future years. Um, The uh, papers that were published in Journal of Food Protection shifted a focus in the 1980s away from technologies such as microwaving and towards new technologies such as irradiation and vacuum packaging. Uh, as the decade uh, progressed, the interest shifted from studies of generic E. coli to the emergence of new pathogens. And one of the new pathogens that emerged in, uh, in the 1980s was E. coli 0157H7. Also, Listeria monocytogenes and Campylobacter. And I still remember to this day, so I started um, in Larry Bouchard's lab 
at the University of Georgia there in Griffin in 1983. And I remember that he had a, a research project going on in his lab at the time looking at Campylobacter. And this was an organism that I had never heard of huh. and that really was indeed brand new. And of course, as always, Larry was right there at the cutting edge uh, to develop methods and understand the behavior of this organism in foods. Um, and then, of course, uh, one of the other things that happened in the 1980s was a shift or not not a shift from, but but in addition to looking at culture-based methods, to look at DNA-based methods for microbial detection. And of course, um, we still have that uh, dichotomy today or that, that uh, interest in molecular-based methods. We still have Listeria, we still have E. coli, we still have Campylobacter, all, all with us today. I, I wanted to highlight one um, passage from uh, the, uh, the article here. Um, that we already talked about today's podcast. In 1987, FSIS initiated a regulatory microbiological sampling program for Listeria monocytogenes, and in 1989 established, quote, zero tolerance for LM in ready meat and poultry products. Although cases of listeriosis have decreased over time, LM remains a primary focus of food safety mitigation effort to this day. So that's where, that's where it started. Indeed. Zero tolerance, 1989. Yeah. Um, Don, you mentioned the sort of, I guess, um, discovery of Campylobacter as a foodborne pathogen, or at least it's, you know, rise to uh, recognition that it was causing illnesses to when we look at today, um, depending on the year you're looking at in food net that CDC would say that Campylobacter, uh, makes up. You know, of all the bacterial foodborne pathogens, if not number one, uh, close to number one with, with salmonella right there next to it. Um, what, I mean, what was it like in 1983 when you started at graduate school? You know, what, what were people really, really focused on? I mean, it was salmonella and that was right at the start of um, pathogenic E. coli um, as well. I mean, what what was your interaction like with with epidemiologists who were trying to solve outbreaks? I mean, before all the uh, molecular techniques and before um, sort of a lot of the microbiology was going on, what were, you know, what were people focused on? Well, that's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> I really have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. <night. laughs> I, I was focused on doing my research, uh, which was on fermented foods. So I was doing research in Larry's lab right. on food fermentation, uh, looking at making products um, – uh, fermented food products made from legume milk. So I was looking at uh, peanut milk and soy milk and cowpea milk. They had a big project with Nigeria where they eat a lot of cowpeas, which is another legume. And we were looking at ways to basically extract um, milk-like products, uh, you know, milk analogs from these things and ferment them uh, with lactic acid bacteria. Um, and honestly, as a, I look at the graduate students that are around today and I look at what they're able to accomplish and they are so much better <clears throat> at what they were doing than I ever was. I was really basically sort of peripherally, peripherally aware of what other people were doing. Like I said, I know that Larry's tech, uh, Brendan Nail, was doing some Campylobacter research. and, and But I, I, have, I had, like, I don't want to say zero curiosity, but I really just didn't. It was all I could do to just sort of focus on my own research and kind of get my head around what it was like to work in a laboratory. I have 
um, I just have no perception of of what it was like. I mean, I, I you know I went to class and I had I had Joe Frank as a professor. I had Mark Harrison as a professor. Um, I had uh, you know my soon-to-be uh, PhD advisor Romeo Toledo as a food engineering professor, and I remember taking their classes and learning all this stuff. And and but you know as to specific details, interaction with epidemiologists, I didn't even know what <laughs> epidemiologists were. Right. Um, so I was clueless. So I can't tell you. <laughs> I can't give you the answer to your question. Well, no, that's okay. That's a good. That's a good answer to it because you know I. I wonder, you know, looking back at the graduate students that, that we have now that are going through the, um, you know, through the, the process and, uh, you know, the, the accessibility of all, you know, information on outbreaks that, that goes on the Internet um, and social media kind of uh, drumming up a lot of conversation around foodborne illness it does it i think it changes their experience to to a more um you know integrated type uh world i guess uh where where people are being students are being exposed to um to epidemiology and how outbreaks are solved and why those pathogens become important uh before or or at the same time as that they're doing research on them and i i maybe that's just in my you know n equals one anecdote of of the what you know anecdotally what i what i see um you know going on but it sounds like that you you've you know you kind of captured that with with your comments as well i i just you know i, I somewhere that interface happen you know the the you know i don't and, and and it was sometime after 1983 and and before you know 2001 um when i when i started graduate school where where there were these um where that the world of public health and and microbiology and outbreaks specifically i guess it's not the world of public health but it's the investigations of outbreaks and and how that um influenced some of the research questions uh, it became more um, more commonplace. I mean, you got got to think that if Larry was looking at Campylobacter, um, you know, he he's he was probably tapped into the world of uh, of folks on the public health side that were seeing, or the medical side that were seeing Campylobacter as a as an infection that might be linked to foodborne illness. Oh, yeah, and I want to share just like again two two more like personal anecdotes really about people, um, and one was again I remember remember having Joe Frank as a professor um, for not for a food safety micro class but he was in the dairy science department at the time and he taught a class on fermented foods, and I still remember to this day him making a comment about and he was had a grad this was a graduate level class and he was trying to get us to think like graduate students and he talked about the importance of making connections like so mm. if you. You, as a student or as a researcher, if you're able to see two disparate things or you're able to see something in this one field over here and this other thing in this other field and see a way to make a connection, like that's how science progresses is seeing the connections between things. And that had never – I mean I guess I sort of knew it on one level, but I had never heard it explained quite so clearly. And that was that was tremendous to me to, to have that and to have him as a professor and to really get – the kind of the way he thought and the way he reasoned about things, and 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 again, it's 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 so it's amazingly cool to be able to be like a, 
now a faculty member myself and be able to collaborate with him and, and we have an ongoing collaboration you know on modeling and salmonella survival in in dry foods and it's 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 fantastic to think that the guy that the kid that was a graduate student in his class later went on to become his collaborator that to me is just a really cool story um and the other thing that i other thing that i point that i want to make is that um I still remember um, taking intro, so this is now flash backward to, to my time as an undergrad, taking introduction to food micro, introduction to microbiology, general micro, with uh, Paul Vandermark, who was a professor in the microbiology department there at Cornell. And one of the things, I hated that class, and it was, I, did the, I did horrible in that class. It was the worst grade I ever got. Um, um, and I, it was like sort of an alphabetical march through you know, microorganisms starting from bacillus and ending with vibrio. And it was, it was, it was horrible. And it was all memorization and taxonomy. But one of the things that, that Professor Vandermark did that I absolutely loved, and I still remember to this day, is he used to read to us from MMWR, <laughs> right? Awesome. So he used to read to us um, from Morbidity Mortality Weekly Reports, which is still one of my favorite places of places to go to read stuff. And somebody was just asking me the other day, where can I go to read? Oh, I know. It was our friend, uh, friend of the podcast, uh, Tom Seberts, who sent me a DM on Twitter saying, hey, where can I go to uh, read more? I think it was him. My apologies if it's not. Um, uh, to read more about um, outbreaks. Where do I go? And I said, well, hey, it's MMWR. Yep. That's the place to go to read about outbreaks. If you read that, if you follow that, then you're, you know, oh, sorry, it's not it's not uh, Tom Siebert. It's another person <laughs> that follows us on Twitter. Dan Latendra, and I, I, apologies to Dan, um, who, uh, who who did come to a, a, a food safety course here at Rutgers, and I do I do remember him, and, and I didn't make the connection at the time. But anyway, Dan is in Boston and a Boston Bruins fan, as you Bo- can tell from his Twitter logo. Tom is also a Boston Bruins fan, oh, so that's so where... That's why I'm yeah. confused. That's the uh, one they with the little... Like Bruins fans. Yeah, that's the one with the little rubber dingus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's... I mean, you're, you're, you're spot on. That's um, where, where I kind of got my taste for for outbreaks and becoming the self-proclaimed outbreak junkies from MNWR and, and from Euro surveillance and all the stuff that we were picking up, um, as part of the, uh, precursor to barf blog FSnet. But I mean, that's, that, that's the, it's just, it's just so good. It's like, it's to me, it's, this is going to get real nerdy real quick, but it is like the New York times magazine of the outbreak world, right? Like it's a classic. The, the authors who write there are good. It's never, there's never a bad article in MMWR. It's short. It's to the point. It's where you get all the right information. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Ah, uh, Hey, so, uh, Oh, I need to close that out. Yes, you do. All right, we'll go bug trivia now, history of food safety, IAFP. Very good. It's awesome. Very good. So I think it's time to start the show. Yeah, let's start the show. We, got four, we have four minutes until we really officially need to start the show, right? Either four minutes till we start or till we end. I'm not sure. Oh, till we till we start. <laughs> this is, we're just getting good. Um, I do want to talk about uh, cashew cheese. Oh, I thought you wanted to talk about fox tainted donkey. Oh, oh, we'll get to that. Okay. Yeah, we'll get to that. But I want to talk about cashew cheese first. Sure. Um, and so uh, there's been an outbreak um, 
of salmonella uh, associated with this product called cashew cheese, which is a, a non-dairy based uh, cheese substitute. Um, 14 people, <coughs> um, excuse me, in um, three states, I believe it is. Um, yeah, in California, Nevada, and Wyoming uh, have come sick, uh, become sick with this. It's a pretty high level of hospitalization. Uh, it's salmonella Stanley. I didn't mention the um, the serotype uh, from the uh, from the pathogen, um, but um, I just wanted to to talk a little bit about cashew cheese because I don't know much about it, but I think you know based on some of our email um, conversations, you know a little more about this product, right? <laughs> Can you talk about it? <laughs> If I'm off mute, I can, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> I was like, Don, are you there? Yeah. So, um, I ha- again, um, because pr- apparently this week for me it's all about uh, talking with people and personal connections, I still remember. I, I have this I – can, I can almost always remember if I'm having, a, having a, a conversation with someone or someone is talking into my ears, either listening to a podcast or having a phone call, where I was when I heard that voice in my ears. And so I was driving to work one day and the phone rings and it's the FDA and it's somebody from the FDA. And I won't say who it is, but, you know, um, we, we can, you could, you could probably guess someone from um, the FDA, someone from the FDA, um, who's not Linda Harris. It's in the, uh, someone in the cashew cheese, uh, who is the cashew cheese portfolio? Yes. Yeah. Cashew, and he, 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 uh, he, he calls me on the phone. He says, Don, we have a situation. <laughs> I'm like, like, I don't have a situation. Oh, crap. I, uh, yeah. I'm really sorry. I, I, didn't, I didn't really mean to do whatever it is you think I did. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, no. Um, uh, we have a, an entrepreneur in New Jersey who is we're a little, we're a little worried about. <laughs> awesome. And it was it was a, a very and I think we've talked about this before on the podcast as well. It's a very nice lady who's making uh, basically uh, she's you know very big in the raw food movement and she's a raw food entrepreneur and um, you know somehow uh, she had an she was making this food in a church kitchen you know which she was really trying hard to do everything right and um, making a bunch of foods in this church kitchen. She sort of started up this little business and it actually became very successful. And again, I've had just tremendous amount of respect for these people that are able to overcome all of these hurdles. And um, she was making a bunch of different types of products, but including one product, which was basically a quote unquote cheese that they, that you make from cashews where basically you, you chop up uh, you chop up the cashews. There may be an aqueous extraction or the addition of water, and uh, but it's all raw. Um, it's you know again the raw food, and we we we've, we've talked about this, and we can we can link to some raw food documents. Um, but but basically, there's certain rules if you're going to make a food that that qualifies as raw. There's certain uh, restrictions about the amount of temperature exposure that you can do with this, and and so she's making this cashew cheese product basically modeled after. Uh, what another small company in the metropolitan in New York metropolitan area was making, um, and she worked out this recipe by herself. Uh, she was she knew it had to be fermented, and so she was going to the health food store and she was buying probiotics in capsules, cool. adding these probiotics to the cheese to do the fermentation um, to the to the cashews. Sorry, to do the fermentation, and then she also to give different flavors. She was adding different. 
um, ingredients, kind of like what you what we see in this particular outbreak. So I'm just looking to see all the different. Yeah. So so they have uh, in this particular outbreak we're talking about right now, they have herb flavor, smoked cheddar, pepper jack. Well, yeah, those, that's not really helpful. But but anyway, there are different. Um, ingredients uh, that you can use um, in these products, and she and she was using some some different ingredients, some of all of which were botanical in nature, and all of which to qualify as raw were not being given any kind of a heat treatment. And so, one of the things that she had to do in response to I don't know if she did it or if it was samples that maybe the state New Jersey. Uh, health and senior services had taken um, somebody ran some micro tests on this stuff and basically found high levels of coliforms. They found E. coli in some samples, um, basically enough so that some you know they didn't find any pathogens. But again, look at the, what the product is, how it's being made, and alarm bells kind of went off. And I had a nice conversation with her. I talked to her about, you know, I, you know, I understood what she was trying to do with raw foods. I said, what you really need to do is you really need to, oh, so raw foods and vegan, right? So what you really need to do is get some, if you really want to do this right, you're going to need to do some research. You're going to have to get some cultures, not just probiotics that you bought off the grocery store shelf or the health food store shelf, but you're going to have to actually talk to companies that sell cultures for use in food. So Christian Hansen that sells a lot of cultures for the dairy industry. Um, and she talked to them and they couldn't guarantee that their cultures were dairy free and she wanted to make this, you know, raw vegan dairy free thing. And so I ended up just saying, look, I don't I just don't think that you can do this. Um, and then the good news is for her is she had a bunch of other products, not just this cashew cheese product, a bunch of other products that she could kind of sort of beef up that area of her business and kind of set this cashew cheese side of her business, even though it was a very popular product, set it aside and not uh, and not worry about that. And so and the moral of the story is she listened. She's like one of these entrepreneurs that actually paid attention and listened and, and really wanted to do the right thing. And she ended up basically not making this product anymore. And it's, you know, this is something that we've, we've talked about before and that, that seems to come up again and again and, and seems to show no signs of going away. It's just this whole entrepreneurial food movement, which seems to be just happening everywhere around the country. And this is this particular outbreak, um, you know, in California that we're talking about is no is no exception. Right. I mean, this is what is likely a small food company uh, named the Cultured Kitchen. Uh, They're making this product. It likely is improperly heated or may not be heated at all. Um, And and I suspect that and we don't it's not really clear from the what the CDC has published, like the, the company's done a recall of their whole product line, it looks like, but it's, there's no indication as to whether it was one particular product or not. Like, so for example, was it the, the pesto or basil pesto product uh, or, or was it really all the products? And that information is lacking from whatever CDC has, has put out. Um, but I mean, the bottom line is, is that these are, these are products that I imagine can be made safely, but that uh, also are probably not trivial to make safely. And, and I, I worry about, again, it's sort of harkening back to our earlier discussions about my my master's research, I suspect that understanding how you make cashew cheese and choosing the right cultures to ferment it, 
all of that and then getting the levels of inoculation right so that the, the natural, the, 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 the cultures, the, the organism that's going to do the fermentation for you is at a level that's higher than the background flora. Um, all of that is not a trivial food technology problem to solve. And I suspect this company was kind of winging it and sort of developing things by the seat of their pants. And it, it's obviously it's come back to bite them. Yeah, it's... <clears throat> there's some, I mean, as with any outbreak in investigation, there's there's some, you know, it, <clears throat> excuse me, unanswered questions that would be um, that we can guess and speculate at because that's what the fun stuff that we get to do on the um, on the podcast. But this one, you know, you're, you're right. This is a, a a raw product. It's not heat treated, um, according to um, the CDC um, uh, outbreak alert. Um, uh, the uh, recall that uh, was initiated on New Year's Eve that was posted uh, on the FDA website um, says uh, something kind of interesting on this. The recall was initi- initiated immediately after it was suspected the raw materials used in the production of the Cultured Kitchen's cashew cheese product may have been tainted with a specific strain of salmonella found almost exclusively in Southeast Asia, where the company's cashews are sourced. So th- if we think back to um, the uh, Smiling Hera Tempe uh, outbreak that we had uh, here in North Carolina uh, in t- uh, 2012, um, or 2000, yeah, it must have been 2012. That um, that outbreak was uh, para, Salmonella paratyphi B and was linked to a starter culture. Uh, and it's a different type of product, still fermented, but a, a raw product. I don't know enough about the process for cashew cheese to really un, you know understand that fermentation uh, process and how it might be going on and what temperatures it's at and what the acidity is and all that good stuff. But, um, yeah, the cashews might be imported but also they've got a bunch of spices and the culture itself might might be the source of this contamination um you know potentially but the the fact that it is a a strain of salmonella that is associated with southeast asia which is where they source their cashews to me that 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 makes it clear in my mind that it is can't be sure of course but it's probably it is most likely the cashews that are the source which explains why they're recalling all of the product true it also indicates and this this kind of makes this other bit of information make more sense it says one ill person identified in utah likely acquired their infection during international travel and was excluded from the case counts that's probably somebody who traveled to southeast asia got the same organism um or 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 you know almost the same organism but maybe and maybe from cashews they consumed in southeast asia rather than this product so again it just shows the the interconnections i think of, of all of these uh all of these these illnesses um in a way that's quite interesting yeah it's just my you know my my thought is the cashews come from southeast asia but so might the spices in the culture you know the right. or the starter culture the, you know it, the, the you know it could be who knows um well at this point or maybe fda does now but you're you're right the um that that is a definitely pointing in the in the right direction. I mean, but it, it, it this is one of the things that we've we've talked about a lot. So if that's the case, if FDA thinks or if Culture Kitchen thinks that that the the cashews themselves um, were the issue, how many other companies? imported those cashews or purchased those cashews you know are there other um 
is there other salmonella uh, Stanley floating around in, in cashews uh, that, that are coming from uh, Southeast Asia? It's you know it's the interconnectedness of of these outbreaks. There's always a little. You start looking at it and then scratch scratch back uh, scratch some and you see a, a bunch more beneath it. Um, right, and this this points out the importance of trace forward and trace back. So we traced it back to this this company, but now we have to say, okay, well now, okay, given that this company sourced cashews uh, from this supplier and it's this set of batches, who else might have sourced that same product from that same company? And now this whole web of connections starts to light up, and people start to think about, okay, well now we need to you know let other people know. Obviously, this particular uh, strain is now sort of lighting up in the um, the CDC's, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 culture database, the, free, the PulseNet database, and um, we need to look for other people that are sick with the same organism that maybe can't, where their out, where their illness can't be explained by international travel, and uh, and yeah, so and and again, also really important to get the word out to people that are making. And again, I can tell you, there's there's at least two companies. There were at least two companies in the New York metropolitan area, now down to one, um, not the company that I helped that are making this product. And and it, it if if salmonella can be found in raw cashews, and duh, guess what, it's found in all raw nut, nuts. So no surprise that it's going to be found in raw cashews. Um, this is something that those companies making that product need to be aware of. And the fact that it is a raw product um, makes it uh, especially risky. One, um, one other thing that, that I think is interesting about this is we don't know anything about the Culture Kitchen's production, but they've, they've recalled just specific lots and they haven't sort of named those lots just all expiration dates up to and including 41914 which by uh, as an aside is actually my birthday um so happy birthday to me in a couple of months from the culture kitchen uh but but so so what made that what makes that lot of production different you know we don't have that information is it that um, that was the last lot of these specific cashews that were, uh, uh, um, yeah, then the, the illnesses may be linked to, if it was the cashews, that's, that's the lot uh, of it. And then the next lot, um, is, is not, has not been linked to illnesses, but you know, it's, it's by doing that, you know, that, that may satisfy FDA right now, but it still leaves them open, Culture Kitchen open, to this idea of, well, yeah, sure, we got one lot of contaminated cashews, but how do we know that our, you know, next lot isn't contaminated, you know, to revisit that that process uh, from the from a risk standpoint um, is, is kind of important. But, it, I mean, it looks like to me that they've there's something that they know about, that they have some business information that says that everything that that has that expiration date is different than something that's got an expiration date afterwards well and the question that i would ask is are there any expiration dates after that because uh, that may be a complete recall right ah uh, uh, yes and and then there, if you look on their website it says um uh, we did a recall products pulled back from market set up an investigation team uh, continue to strengthen our food safety standards um, and diligent sourcing of our ingredients. We will inform yeah. you as soon as our products are back on the shelves and available for sale. What that says to me is I don't think they have any products available for sale, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I th- yeah, I think you're right. I, th- I think that's – yes, that's, that's how I'd read that. 
So, yeah, so it could be they're, they've pulled everything back. Yeah, and, you know, I look, yeah, I'm looking, uh, I'm looking, I'm trying to order some pesto cashew cheese because that's my favorite flavor. And uh, <laughs> it's not, it's not letting me order it. So I'm wondering if I can, if I can order off their website, if I can order anything else. So, um, um yeah. No, it's just, no, it's just only, you, you can't, they're not selling anything apparently. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, huh. Yeah, it has a shopping cart though. I, this is very weird. I don't understand their website, Ben. I don't know. I, they um, they have an awesome website. There's, it's always fun to go back and look at comments. Um, Tom, so I'm looking at the white cheddar cashew cheese. Tom in June said, I see no way to get prices and order items. And then there was a response July 4th. Sorry to say, but we're not shipping at the moment because of the high summer temperatures. What does that mean? Oh, <laughs> Are they interesting. <laughs> Yeah. And then uh, from today, uh, January 6th, Terry said, I'd like to place an order and, and live down in Orange County. Are you able to ship products to my area? What's the minimum order? Can you call me or email me? Huh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, anyway, in, um, an interesting outbreak. I mean, horrible. The, I mean, again, we've seen this with, with a couple of recent salmonella outbreaks, the high rate of hospitalization. Um in in this, I mean, salmonella has got a higher rate of hospitalization than um, yeah than than other pathogens, Campylobacter, uh, and yeah, norovirus. But twenty five percent of those ill uh, reported hospitalization. So it's I mean it's it's significant um, you know significant public health uh, impact. I when I was preparing for this as I do uh, for the podcast, I went and looked at a few. Um, home cashew cheese recipes, and none of the ones that I found are fermented. The, huh. the, they're just—I um, I mean, I think it's a different type of cheese, but it's—it's it, it's basically uh, take a cup of cashews, soak them in water, add some uh, either lemon juice or lime juice. I imagine that's for taste because it's not—it's only well, two teaspoons might be might do something. Some salt, some black pepper, and then put it in a blender, hmm. uh, and then refrigerate it. So it's, I mean, seems like cashew cheese. There's different types of it. The the commercially available stuff, Cultured Kitchen, and the two or three other places that I found that that sell it, they all describe it as a fermented product. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just, and this website is fascinating. So I'm I'm now <laughs> researching um, the uh, the raw energy bar for women. <laughs> Apparently, it is woman specific. Did it let you uh, click on it? Or maybe yeah. you, as a you might a, a gift for it, Kristen. It let me click on it. Yeah. Um, but but it's but somebody asked Rochelle asked a question from June. I came across your product at Whole Foods. I tried your cashew spread. I noticed your ingredients list active cultures. Where do you get these active cultures huh. from? And the answer is we get our cultures from vegan starters. What does that mean? I, that's a really good question. I'm tempted to leave a reply that says, what's a vegan starter? Is, is it – you know, my dad was a, a, a gym teacher. Uh-huh. And he used to start the races. Was he a vegan, though? He's not a vegan, though. Yeah, no. So, so it's would, not – he would have been a, get from him. an omnivore starter. Right. Oh. <laughs> uh, um. So, uh, I don't. I don't know. A, a nice, you know, play on words on the cultured kitchen because it's all about um, active culture uh, foods. They've got a, a an about us uh, benefits of cultured food section of their website as well that uh, talks about this. And and I mean this this is topical. You, you mentioned some businesses. I had a conversation right before Christmas with a. Uh, 
a consultant who works for restaurants, who is working with a restaurant in Charlotte who wanted to make their own um, in-home uh, fermented foods, kimchi, and not in-home, in-restaurant fermented foods and serve it uh, as a um, – you know, it was a garnish on on their in, in their restaurant, um, and we had a you know a, a, an hour and a half conversation about the what that meant from a regulatory standpoint and what the risks were and in um, the uh, uh, what's the guy's name guy who's who has uh, was a guy in Virginia who's all about active culture. His, so he was also consulting with this restaurant and um, had said, you know, all the regulatory stuff is garbage. And, um, you know, if you do this absolutely the way that my recipes uh, state that you'll you'll be safe and it won't have any impact on um, on your customers. But um, the folks that are uh, in the, uh, the that implement the food code uh, are don't really know how to assess variances like this uh, anyway. I'm all over the place, Don. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, that's okay. This is uh, that's that's it's interesting that this he can say this with such confidence. Yeah. Well, I won't. Not to libel him, I won't. I can't find his name. <laughs> so it's the guy from Virginia. Okay. Um. So yeah, cashew cheese. I'd never heard of cashew cheese, and I'm glad that you knew a little bit about it. But I'd not mm-hmm. heard of it until uh, last week when I started reading about it. Yeah, well, and I hadn't really heard of it until I got that call from uh, my colleague, our colleague at the FDA. Um, so yeah, it was it's it's been it's been interesting, and I kind of I, when I saw this, I didn't. I was I don't want to put this the wrong way, but I kind of I kind of said I told you so. It's just like okay, well, th- yeah, exactly. I mean, it was only a matter of time before we saw an outbreak. Yeah, of here it is. Product, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, you got lots of stuff going on. You got uh, you know, like you said, nuts. Well, there might be a bit of salmonella there because we know that from a lot of uh, a lot of outbreaks. And the more we look at dry foods like this, the more uh, issues we we see with with salmonella. And then you've got um, you know no, uh, I mean low low acid, or it seems like it. Plus, you're trying to ferment stuff, and uh, you, you want it to all be raw. I mean, it's just a nice, um, scary combination of things. Agreed. Ah. <laughs> uh. So I want to talk a little bit about um, – there's two things I want to talk about, which I bet okay. you can guess at them. One is well, – uh, Is one foxes and the yeah, other donkeys? <laughs> no, no, not both foxes. One, okay. That is one, foxes okay. and donkeys. The other one is uh, cooking things in your coffee pot. All right. <laughs> so all right. Let's start, start with foxes and donkeys. Um, so uh, Walmart in China has uh, dealt with a little bit of excitement in the news and um, sort of uh, focusing a lot of the stories that, that come out of China or that have come out of China uh, with regards to food safety in the last uh, few years have to do with um, uh, mislabeling or uh, adding different things into food um, to uh, increase its value or um, you know f- some food fraud stuff and so the the latest scandal according to the Atlantic is uh, donkey meat uh, that is sold at Walmart uh, being um, uh, supplemented with other types of meats uh, including fox and one of our uh, common friends uh, um, who I don't think is a listener to the podcast, but I think we can mention uh, his name, Jeff Lejeune, posted on Facebook uh, about this um, and had a question for his food safety uh, uh, friends like like us and said, um, so what would the issues be with fox meat? You know, what are what are the risks associated with, with fox meat that would change um, 
you know, the safety, if, are there any different safety issues? And, and I think um, you uh, answered uh, first uh, about this, uh, and then our esteemed colleague, Kathy Cutter at Penn State, you both had uh, similar answers around uh, parasites that might be associated with foxes uh, or fox. Is that, I guess foxes is the right plural. Mm-hmm. Fo- <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, that being, you know, so, somewhat different and, uh, or, or that would be the, the risk or the hazard, I guess, associated with them that, that might be different and that it might be. Um, so anyway, that was the, the, the first part of the conversation. One of the things that, that came up, we talked about this a little bit with, with my group this morning when I, um, when we all got back from our Christmas vacation, we we're hanging out. Um, what, you know, what, what's the source for the fox? What's the f- source for the fox meat? And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, good question, right? Like, yeah. So, but I bet this is, and this is again, sp- purely speculation. I bet it's it's um, it, it's fur. I bet you that it's farm. Someone's farming fox for fur, and then are using the meat as you know supplementing that. And so, so you've got this issue of raising that that meat and double purposing it. So it, it may not be a fully wild fox because it seems like you couldn't. Hunt excuse me, hunt enough fox to supplement your donkey meat with it. Um, but there's probably fox farms. Right, right. And, and, I, think, and I think I saw this dis- discussed somewhere else on the Internet where somebody else had, a, had a sort of a similar – had come to a similar conclusion, which, which I think actually makes some sense. Um, but, you know, foxes are uh, carnivores, right? They're not, they're not vegetarians. And they – I think if, even if you're farming them, you have to feed them meat. And like I said, to me yep. – Parasites, which I which I see now, I have misspelled in my in my response to Jeff's post. Um, uh, I, I see. Uh, I mean, to me, that's the top of the list. But the other thing too is that um, you know people are allergic to strange things, and 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 you know uh, we talked before about. Uh, trying to get Amy Jane Gruber to come on the yeah. uh, the podcast, and she's allergic apparently to chicken, I think, which is kind of weird. But uh, there might be somebody who's allergic, and then, but and either way, it's just it's just it's simply uh, misbranding, right? It's just it's not it's not legal. But um, yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's interesting interesting problem. Um, and yeah, I mean, if if you, if you want to sell people fox, that's that's totally fine. But boy, you better you better declare it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Don't mix it in with my donkey meat. Right. Um, Jeff uh, found a, a nice paper and he posted um, this, and it's uh, from the. Uh, it looks like the Croatian Journal of Veterinarian Vet Vet Journal, uh, and the title is "The Red Fox as a Source of Zoonoses." And uh, so he mentions uh, Jeff sort of pulled some stuff out uh, from it, but looking at uh, potentially rabies and, and trichinella. Uh, as, as the um, sort of big uh, issues that that might come up, but but the preparation, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the issues are with donkey meat, but I imagine um, you know there would be pathogens associated with that, and any preparation to take care of um, some of the, you know some of the more common meat pathogens should take care of uh, um, the trichina, unless um, they're. You know, preparing it like it's pork. Right, right. Yeah. So, anyway, that was good. And, of course, I added nothing to the discussion other than to say <laughs> a better question is, what does the fox disguised as the donkey say? 
Well, but I will point out that that of all of the comments, that one has the most likes. <laughs> yeah, easy, easy laughs. <laughs> Speaking of easy laughs, um, uh, I think the Atlantic is taking a page from uh, Barf Blog here. The the subheading is Walmart has yanked the government. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> even say it. Did they finger the problem? <laughs> no. <They> fig- <laughs> no. <laughs> No, they just yanked the donkey meat. <laughs> I do like the, the quote that I took took straight out of the Atlantic of, according to a Chinese saying, in heaven there is dragon meat and on earth there is donkey meat. <laughs> but it has to be pure donkey meat straight up. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, the last thing on my list today was to talk about this uh, cooking, cooking things in a coffee pot. Sure. Um, and so uh, one of our um, esteemed listeners, uh, Michelle Danilak, who is named and I think now we're going on uh, 53 straight episodes, 54 straight episodes by mentioning her. Um, Michelle sent us a, a link um, about uh, cooking things in a coffee maker. And uh, this is from uh, BuzzFeed. And so, or in a coffee pot, I guess. And so, um, there's a, you know, the, the article is about 12 surprising things. Let me pull it up because I got rid of it. There we go. Um, you can make instant oatmeal with your Keurig, boil hot dogs in your coffee maker, make soft-boiled eggs in your coffee pot, ramen in your Keurig, chocolate fondue in your coffee maker, steam vegetables in the filter basket. Make herbs, herb stock in your coffee pot, a fried egg on your coffee pot burner, candied nuts in your coffee pot, poached chicken with couscous in your coffee maker, which is the best. Um, use the burner to make a grilled cheese sandwich, cook broccoli uh, in it. And um, I, got, I have a couple of things that I wanted to mention on this. One is I had a one, you know, going back to my first year of university where I learned about being in the top 1% of people who know anything about biology, um, had a, uh, a, a guy who uh, lived three doors down from me in my dorm who um, went through his meal plan in about a month. So it's a, you know, an eight, eight month uh, um, meal plan and it was just a credit card basically and so he he would eat like four or five meals a day and eat a lot of stuff and then he found that he was running out so he started um, cooking things in uh, coffee tins um, in in our uh, little sweet um, uh, kitchen which in kitchen I use that term with Richard Fingers um, because it was equipped with a coffee maker that someone had brought in and that was it uh, oh, and a microwave, but he, uh, the microwave, every time he turned it on, it, it smelled like fish. So he never used that. And he had this, like, why, why <laughs> use a microwave for something? Right. Right. So he just constantly would cook stuff in the coffee maker. And he had this tin that he would put underneath, um, the, uh, the, you know, where the, where the canister for the coffee would, would normally sit and he would run uh, water through it and would cook ramen noodles. He'd cook oatmeal. I mean, he, he might've written this article from Buzzfeed. A lot of the stuff, I never saw him boil hot dogs in the coffee maker, but I think that's probably the most ridiculous, um, where it's pretty, pretty ridiculous here. Uh, but he, he definitely, um, I saw him use a lot of this, these techniques, uh, <laughs> Um, so I've seen this. I've seen this firsthand, and I know what people go to, what, what likes people go to when they're uh, low on uh, on food money. Now, this whole um, 
post chicken couscous with couscous in the coffee maker harkens back to something that we've talked about on cooking and dishwasher uh, three or four times. So Michelle's suggestion was that while we're doing our dishwasher study, we may also look at this uh, uh, cooking in a coffee maker in our in our kitchen, and we we may actually do this. Did you have a chance to look at this recipe? That they I did not. I did not look at it in a great amount of detail. No, I scanned it. Um, but you know, I mean, all of these look like ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> Sorry. About, no, it's it's okay. Um, step two. Let me just read this. Step two. Flip your chicken. You'll notice here that the chicken is cooking, but there's no Malliard reaction. That's what Alton Brown loving nerds call browning. Coffee makers just don't get hot enough to brown meat. I try to pan fry a cutlet on the burner, and it refused to take on any color. It's probably just as well because the coffee maker got hot enough. Uh, because if the coffee maker got hot enough to brown meat, I'd burn the crap. You'd burn the crap out of your coffee. And your mouth. So let it cook for another 15 minutes on the side and then remove from the craft. It's time to prep your side dish. That, that's about as food safety as it gets. <laughs> oh, and I, I must have read this because I, 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 my comment back to Michelle um, when all this came was I, I, my favorite part of the whole article is the last comment on the page that says, I prefer <laughs> to just do my frozen chicken Maryland above a wok filled with oil and spend an hour and a half spilling hot oil over it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, congrats to, to Sean Meany for getting to the heart of the matter. This is just simply not an efficient way to cook anything. <laughs> it's it's like the yeah, it's like ridiculous. Um, uh, how about the results? Well, it tasted like post chicken. That's pretty much the most boring way to prepare the most boring cut of animal I can think of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I just yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, pretty pretty good stuff. Thanks to Michelle for sending that our way. And I mean, just. Uh, chalk this up in our long line of people doing things like we wouldn't have intended them to do them as the manufacturer of a the food and b the appliance (laughs) yeah well and you know and there was a lot of i mean it was the holidays right so there was just a lot of wacky stuff um and i actually i do want to follow up on this uh post from the wall street journal um which is uh the the headline is dead dog found in pret a manger salad and so um i'll just read briefly from the article it says uh, while eating her lunchtime salad a wall street journal employee found an unexpected ingredient a frog uh after opening a, a pret a manger a pret a manger nichoise salad at her desk and eating about half of it she discovered uh, a 2 inch long green and brown dead frog in the lettuce um and and of course they contacted the company and the, the, again, the, the pull quote for me from this was the, the, uh, the somebody from, from the company says, at Pret-a-Manger, we take issues like this very seriously. Our lettuce is sourced from farms that do not use any pesticides on its produce. Therefore, organic matter does very rarely manage to pass through our production process. Awesome. So my question is, so <laughs> you're, using, you're using pesticides... To control frogs, frog pesticides. <laughs> uh, and I, I mean, it's it just it just to me, yeah. Okay, so bad stuff happens. You can find a frog in your salad. That's unfortunate. But the bigger concern for me is that the the person um, uh, who who is in charge of food safety or the spokesperson for this company has no idea what they're doing. Yeah. Right. A bad thing happened, but worse than that. I have no confidence that they're going to be able to fix it because the person that spoke to the news media about this is an idiot. And, and just says, yeah, 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 this is, we kind of expect this every once in a while. <laughs> 
because of our pest, because, no pesticides. Because we don't use pesticides. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, ah, it's, it's insane. I, I do like that it's, the, my favorite part is, therefore, organic matter does very rarely manage to pass through our production process. It's a salad. It's all organic <laughs> it's all, matter. Right. Very rarely. It's, it's only, that's all you have. <laughs> oh. Yeah, but but by highlighting it that it was or it's it's or you know it's 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 natural. It's a dead frog. It's living, or it was living. <laughs> and somebody somebody writes in the comments. I'd like to know what killed the frog. They don't use any pesticides. <laughs> uh, comments are the greatest. We should just do a whole show based on comments. Like, I eat frogs. They taste better than chicken. Exactly. Uh, the this lone dead frog is like the one additional commandment that Jesus Christ gave us before he was murdered, which was love one another just as I have loved you. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, anyway, Don, that was awesome. Oh, the frog. Um, what else? Well, we talked a lot about some of this stuff. Well, you know, it's the new year yeah. and a lot of people had their top food safety stories. I, I'm, I'm glad to see. I, I don't think Barf Blog stooped to anything that. No, nah, we got uh, out of that game a while schlocky. ago. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the top 10 food safety stories, that's a little bit contrived. Um, the biggest foodborne illness outbreaks, well, that's that might be kind of interesting. Um, I, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, nothing's like pulling at me here. Yeah. Oh, you know, I did I did think that this um uh, uh food safety news uh article on um uh, publisher's platform. So that's uh, Bill Marler talking about how to break a foodborne illness story. I think yeah. that, that there actually is a good. kind of a good, a good comment that he has in there. Um, uh, and he says, um, so, uh, daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly people get sick from eating food, CDC, you know, he cites the CDC estimates. Um, and he talks about the fact that those that are sick are canaries in a coal mine. And so, you know, obviously most people ill in an outbreak don't get reported. Um, but I, I real and he talks about like sort of three different things that that you can do or that he does I guess as a lawyer to kind of goad the process or to push the process is um, hint number three and this is again I think something that that you guys have talked about on on Barf Blog as being very important and Bill's tip here hint number three if a health official refuses to name quote national fast food Mexican restaurant A, quote, then ask them under what legal authority they are making that decision. And if they continue to refuse, file a Freedom of Information Act request and do not back down. So so Bill's point here is that there is no uh, legal authority for not revealing that information. Right. Yeah. That that whole idea of business protection, he talks a little bit about this in the article, is, is you know, not only a, not a legal situation, it's it's a lousy excuse. Right. Um, because, it you know, they're a public health organization or a public health, you know, agency. Um, right. And, and, and he, do, he does kind of qualify that. So right above that where he's talking about, you know, sort of the, the leading into to hint number three is, it, again, this is Bill Marler talking, my bias is full disclosure, but only after it is clear which product or manufacturer is the likely source of the contamination. And so he doesn't – he's not in favor of health officials saying that there's an outbreak and we don't know the cause. Um, now, I guess the key question here is what do you mean – by likely, right, right, and what is the what is the degree? Is it fifty one percent likely? 
Is it, um, you know, uh, 75% likely, 90% likely? And how would you even calculate those numbers anyway, right? Yeah, well, and, and let's look at the um, Culture Kitchen situation right now. The the comment that I made about, well, where if, if – if, FDA posts on their website that recall notice that, that Cultured Kitchen probably wrote that says, we're looking at our cashew suppliers. If FDA is confident enough to post that recall notice, then then they should also be confident enough to tell you who that cashew supplier is. <laughs> you know, whatever likely is at that point to me is it should be it should be you know public and and as transparent as possible because i'm you know this is not you know, bill has different reasons for for that for wanting that information public i look at it from the business standpoint if i'm buying cashews and i'm doing something that it, you know might look like cashew cheese i want to know if my supplier has just been linked to an outbreak or or likely has been linked to an outbreak absolutely ba- yeah based on that like i want to be able to make a good decision about it Absolutely. And, why, and yeah, so for that matter, why do we not know who the supplier is? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, that, that, that to me seems obvious. Yeah. Um, Bill, Bill makes another good point in this in, uh, in, in before hint number four where he talks about epidemiology. And, and this is um, a, a concept that um, especially when I speak with, with farmers and, and over the last couple of years with all the excitement over the produce rule in, in FISMA, I spent a lot of time talking about, um, uh, you know, outbreaks and uh, situations, you know, good agricultural practices, whatever, uh, to, and crisis management to uh, producer groups. And, you know, he, he answers, Bill answers this question really nicely, you know, saying uh, the producer groups often want uh, some sort of proof. They want a bag of lettuce that has a pathogen in it. They want they want strawberry, a quart of strawberries that has the pathogen strain in it. And he says, simply put, the victims ate the evidence. This is why they became ill, why leftovers didn't test positive for the same pathogen, which is a little bit simplistic. Um, but he says, even if there is food from the same lot available to test, pathogens are not usually, well, I'll insert that, not usually uniformly spread throughout the lot. Or by the time the food is tested, um, other bacteria might have outcompeted the pathogens. Bottom line, even without a positive food sample, the good work of epidemiologists can link people locally, nationally, and even internationally to a common pathogen and the food on which it hooked a ride. Meaning that, um, you know, just because it does, we don't have that smoking gun uh, bag or smoking bag, um, the, the the statistics that the the good the good epidemiologists uh, put together uh, really are, are enough for us to know that these are the this is a, a pretty high likelihood that the people that got sick ate this food uh, and they all ate it together together and these are common you know this is a common uh, source. So that's a good. I like this. Uh, I like this article from Bill last week. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, hey, good. I think that's a show. I think it's a show. It's uh, it's our back to back to school, back to work uh, spectacular, <laughs> right? Right. Back to the back to the bathroom spectacular is what it should be. Because <laughs> when I talked to you this morning, that's what you told me you were wearing. I was wearing, yes. Well, I am now dressed. Well, so. whatever. I don't judge. You could still imagine me in my bathroom. I do. I will. I am. Uh <laughs> Um, well, cool. Hey, uh, as always, it's been awesome. Uh, glad we could catch up on a lovely morning. Uh, and hopefully, uh, over the next two days when things drop below, um, get to, you know, negative 40 
Fahrenheit or wherever it is uh, in New Jersey, and <laughs> negative twenty Fahrenheit here. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mention it, but br- during a brief time during the podcast, it was actually snowing. No, but yeah, it was snowing, but it, it was not warm enough to stick, and now, and now the sun is coming out, so it is really weird, crazy weather here today. That's awesome. Well, enjoy that. Uh, Thanks. Don't go too far tomorrow, uh, and or or do, but wear a lot of clothes. I will. <laughs> All right. I'll All right, talk. Take care, Ben. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. So I got uh, partway through editing uh, the audio for the last episode, so I will get that posted today. Cool, and I'll, I'm I'm good right now, so I'm going to go finish the uh, notes. All right, great. So I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll get that. It'll be up before five. I'm going to go sit at Starbucks for a while. Okay. Oh, I miss Starbucks. That's one thing over the like the holidays. So mm-hmm. Starbucks is like my it's like my outlet. It's the because mm-hmm. I can't do anything real creative other than my podcast um, <laughs> at my office. Mm. Um, Why is that? I don't know. It, there's just too much, like, movement. There's too. There's a lot of, I don't know, social side of things. I'm hmm. checking in with people. I can't get down to my, like, I can do 15 or 20 minutes, but I can't, like, churn through a bunch of stuff. Is that is that because you distract yourself? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I just remove myself from the environment mm-hmm. as opposed to, yeah, I've just learned to. As opposed to being disciplined or closing the door. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I do that. It's just, I don't know. I've gotten into the, 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 this is in the getting things done kind of vein of mm-hmm. I do work in certain areas based on context. Like I only do phone calls in my car now. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I only, so, and I do all my administrative stuff, anything that has to do with um, grants or paperwork or whatever. I do that in my office. Right. right and right. and then I do the writing stuff um, and blog posts at home or mm-hmm. at Starbucks. So I, so I, so in a, in a way that's the discipline that I don't, mm-hmm. I don't yeah, no, waver. That's good because it's like now I'm in this place and now I'm yeah. doing this thing. Right. It, thank you, David. Allen, David, yeah. yeah, David Greer, Allen, David, I don't know. Was that the guy from In Living Color? It was. <laughs> David Allen Greer. David Allen Greer. <laughs> Is yes. that it? Yes, very good. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's, yeah, that's what I, what I do. That's good. Um, so anyway, I'm going to, I'll stick around here for a little bit and then I'll, there's two Starbucks on the way home and I pick and choose which one to go to. Yeah. Do you have like – you've got a home Starbucks, right? Because there's yeah, one really the, close to you. Yeah, I have the Starbucks that I can walk to. Um, and then there's the, the Starbucks that is actually on my way to work. Mm. Um, but it is um, 
the parking lot is small and I really don't like the people there. And so I just stopped going. And so now what I do is um, it's it's kind of slightly – it's like tangentially out of my way. This is fascinating. This is, this this is, is what yeah. people tune in. Um, it's sort of tangentially on my way to work. So it's not like opposite of the way to work, but it's kind of taking me parallel to the way to go to work. So I kind of go – and that's my my home Starbucks, and that has become my my go. I'm going to work Starbucks too, and the people there know me, and they like you know they get my order right, and they're not, and there's plenty of parking, and so I just do that one. And then um, there is uh, there is one um, in in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, that we always <laughs> stop at on the way up to Ithaca. Um, I might have hang on a one. second. Yeah. I may have stopped at a Starbucks in Clark Summit. Clark Summit. Mm-hmm. Where is that? It's in Clark Summit. Yeah, I know, but we're just hang on, hang on. It's near Scranton. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's on my. That's on my way. Yeah, right off eighty one. Yeah, that's it. And it's, I've been there. Well, I'll probably maybe I'll, I'll catch maybe you. Maybe I'll see you there. Yeah. Let me know next time you're over there. <laughs> I'll see if I'm around. I, that's funny you say that because that's that's like. Um, in between here and in the uh, Port Hope uh, district of uh, of Ontario, mm-hmm. um, that is a place that we stop. Like almost, in fact, I'll tell you why I know the Clark Summit <laughs> Starbucks because um, uh, Danny vomited in our car <laughs> right like maybe three miles south of Clark Summit on eighty one and threw up like in our cup holder. It was a mess. And I pulled into that Starbucks uh, parking lot on one of our I'm never, epic trips. I'm never gonna stop there again. No, just just don't just don't um do any don't <laughs> don't try and get anything out of my car my cup holder. <laughs> okay. Oh that's that's fine. So do you come across eighty four and then yeah. go up eighty yeah. one? So, oh yeah, okay. 80 to 80 to 380 to eight no not 84 80 to 380 to 81 and then 81 up and then oh, uh, I see route 79 and Whitney Point yeah um now this is fascinating yeah <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't wasn't fascinating before now it's fascinating uh we do a uh, uh 85 to 90 to <laughs> uh try and avoid DC uh cut across on 17 to 83 up to 81 81 all the way to the border to the 401 <laughs> uh awesome cool um so when should we do this again we should do it again soon um I have on my list of things to do today the history of extension uh, article. Oh, that's good. It hasn't so, come up recently for me to nag you about it. Good. Well, I'm cool trying to stay ahead of that. So, thanks. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm hoping to, to get some time on that. Uh, it is kind of nice. Like, I really enjoyed the holidays, but it is nice to get into a, like, a routine again. I mean, my holiday yeah. routine was I didn't do anything. So I got up and had a free form two weeks and now i just i i got up at you know 5 30 this morning got back into my like situation it was really good hmm. good so but now uh yeah so that's cool and i have like nothing for the next little while yeah it's nice it's really nice but now you, you gotta know like now you gotta crank on those things yeah that you can only do when you got nothing else going on that's right? exactly it yeah like those are stacked up yeah, and that's why writing buddies is so helpful to me because it's like I know it's like okay you know you got this time you yep. got to do this now so and you got you can schedule your you can look at your calendar and say okay well what what do I have going on in the next two weeks well I better use that time because I know yeah it's good uh cool well hey 
Awesome. Uh, do we have any After Dark? you got anything to talk about? No, not really. Eh, me either. I made... Uh... <laughs> we talked about a few things. We talked about directions at Starbucks. That's true. I made I made beef bourgeois and y'all. Vomiting. You did. I did. I had to say something French because you did such a good job with... Um, Prêt-à-manger. Yeah, Prêt-à-manger and Niquoise. Salad Niquoise. Niquoise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, beef bourgeois It was awesome. It's awesome. That's what I ate for lunch today. Mm. It's good. Yeah, well, I, 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 as I did share on uh, via email, um, uh, save, I mean, and Doug's going to wait till it comes out on TV in the TV. But anyway, saving Mr. Banks, yeah, really good. I mean, r- really good. So, who? What is that? Who's in that? Do so it is Tom Hanks and Emma Thompson. Oh, that's the one with the about the um, Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins. Yeah. yeah, it's so good. I mean, it's just like it's just so good. I yeah. I do want to see that. Um, I saw American Hustle. Mm. It was good. Wasn't fantastic though. Mm. It was it was worth it, but um, yeah. So Danny has this thing where she really doesn't like Emma Thompson. Really? Yeah. She, it's like her. She doesn't like um, Jennifer Love Hewitt and uh-huh. Emma Thompson. And they're. Huh. I mean, you couldn't find two different actresses. <laughs> yeah, Chris, Kristen has very strong likes and dislikes about actors and actresses that that I can't quite fathom. But anyway, that's fine. That's yeah. like that's you know. That's fine. So, so maybe, so maybe saying Mr. Banks is not one you want to go to. Well, I mean, I'm, she, she Emma Thompson. This one is not terribly likable. She is kind of obnoxious, and and for reasons that only become clear, you know, as you watch the movie. But yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. We watched um, Back to the Future parts <laughs> one, two, and three with the boys. Oh, awesome! Yeah, it's awesome. There's a lot more swearing than we remember. <laughs> than you remembered? Yeah. There's a lot of holy yes, and and fortunately I was like I didn't have to pull out the he said uh, ship like a boat, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah there, there's a lot more of that. Um, what else? Oh, and uh, Jack watched uh, um, Honey I Shrunk the Kids and Honey I Shrunk the Family or I sh- we shrunk ourselves or we blew up right. the kids or whatever the second one was. Um, so he's yeah he's into the we're we're finding all these like Disney movies that from the from the nineties that that we watched and not we don't remember anything about them or whether they're appropriate or not we just throw them on it's like a roulette <laughs> because this is any good Ghostbusters is another one uh-huh. some a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of sexual undertones that we had to explain yes. on that one yes. <laughs> oh you know speaking of speaking of kids movies and you've probably seen them we we hadn't ever seen uh, Despicable Me and oh, Despicable Me yeah. too really yeah. good fantastic yeah really yeah. really enjoyable yeah so I Despicable Me too at the uh, uh, took the boys to the theater back. I don't know in the summer, I guess when that, when that came out, and it was the the first movie that Sam was glued to in a theater. Like we didn't have to take him have to get popcorn or walk him around. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a long. Yeah, they're really good good movies. Yeah, we enjoy enjoy those very much. So cool. Um, still have not watched Adventure Time, but thank you for the uh, oh, yeah. for the subscription. Or yeah, that's the, okay. The thing we uh, we just haven't. Uh, it, it's one of those things where I've. I've shown it and i was like should we watch this and they're like no timu mizumi <laughs> well you know at some point that switch will click and then you'll be like oh my god why did we not yeah. watch this sooner yeah. so it's there it's not going anywhere it ages well perfect fine um they'll come around i saw something on twitter that made me think of you as well <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, there's a hashtag stringer mandela <laughs> 
that is for Idris Elba. Anytime he oh. appears anywhere. Stringer Mandela. Yeah, like people it. are referring yeah. to him as Stringer Mandela. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. And the, one of the threads, threads that I read was um, someone saying, I've, I've made it all the way through season three of The Wire. And up until this thread, I didn't know that someone killed Stringer. Oh. <laughs> so like, and the guy was not spoiler apologetic. Alert. They're like, spoiler what? alert from eight years ago. Yeah, well, that's got to be a statute of limitations. Yeah. Like, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and they're talking about something that uh, happened in uh, Godfather Three. And, oh. and it's like you forgot to sound the spoiler horn. It's like, well, come on, it doesn't. Yeah, it's been exactly. A long time. Yeah, uh, Star Wars spoiler alert. Luke, Luke's uh, Darth Vader's his father. <laughs> Spoiler oh, alert. and you know, but what is a really a problem is that the the British uh, uh, oh, version of Sherlock came. Oh. <laughs> ah, yes, and 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 that is not airing in the, this country until the nineteenth. Ah, so, so you're seeing those, those are spoiler alerts. Yeah, you got to be. Yeah, got to watch out for that. So are uh, you? I did. I did. Um, a copy did fall off the back of a truck, but Kristen <laughs> said she can wait till the nineteenth. So I uh, we, we acquire um, Downton Abbey a little early too. So, so I'm all up to date on that. No spoilers. And you, you watch that show, don't you? No, no, oh, we don't. We talked about this. You got um, to. You, the, well, so again, you know, Kristen can't get into it, but I tell you, and this has come up the last time we talked about this. Um, uh, the show that the British show that we are watching that is again absolutely amazing that will, I will highly recommend is Ask the Midwife. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Call the Midwife. Call the Midwife. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Danny watched it. She loved it. I, yeah, she watched it while I was away. Really, yeah, it's really good. I mean, just like, it's like I, I don't. I don't like midwives. I don't like, <laughs> you know. You don't like calling. I, I don't like. I, I don't the like. Whole premise. The whole premise does nothing for me. But it's a great show, and cool. the characters are so compelling. And it's just, it's it just, I don't know. Just it just grabs you in a way that that I, you know, it just just doesn't always happen. So well, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna have to catch up on that one. Yeah. Um, have you watched Last Tango in Halifax? Did I ask you about this? Oh, yes. No, we talked okay. about this. I okay. think I might have mentioned it to you. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's good. Okay. Absolutely fantastic. I've, yeah, it's on Netflix now, so I'm going to yeah. – um, Carolyn Dunn uh, mentioned – she said it's awesome. So Yeah, it's t- yeah, and it's and, they're ma- and they, it did well, and they're going to make another season, uh, another oh, cool. series or whatever. So, yeah, it's, yeah, highly recommend it. Oh, cool. Well, there, there we filled up some After, after Dark. Absolutely. I was not capturing any of those, so good luck, Andreas. <laughs> yeah. And- <laughs> So he's, all those. he's got to work for all that that yeah that free beer that we gave that, him that glory that we give him. the glory oh Andreas ah oh, cool uh, all right well I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna head out D- right, uh, Doug Powell just called me so I better call him back Ooh, and see what's going on call him back might be yeah. something important something something big's going on and it's hot in Brisbane <laughs> <laughs> it's hot and there's good food and there's good food yeah and he has sex with his wife well I heard that. <laughs> uh, Awesome. I hope, I hope he's not calling about that. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little embarrassing when he overshares. Yeah, it's possible, though. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows what he's calling about? Thanks for – I'll prep up a little bit. Uh, all right. All well, right. I will talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye.